On this episode of the Concast, we're going to discuss the John Tavares injury. Welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 70, and I thought for this episode we would discuss something that I haven't actually done on the podcast from kind of a live response standpoint is the John Tavares injury. A few people have reached out to me since it's happened and said it would be a good topic of discussion. And I thought, why not? Something I haven't quite done yet on the podcast, discussing an injury that's kind of happened in quote-unquote real time and some of the elements behind the injury from what happened in the field of play to some of the things that might happen subsequently during the recovery process. So for those of you that don't know, um, because I do have listeners from different parts of the world and in different countries, John Tavares is an ice hockey player, a professional ice hockey player that plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He is their team captain. And on May the 20th, in the first playoff game of the season, he suffered a blunt force injury where he got a need in the head. And we'll talk a little bit about the specifics as to what happened early in the first period of of an ice hockey game. And he got hit by another player first and then he went down and then another player was skating by him and need him in in the face essentially so he took a knee to the face at a very high rate of speed he was falling towards the ice and the player that hit him was also traveling at a high rate of speed and it was one of those contact injuries where the player that hit him had no opportunity to get out of the way john because he had been hit was also rendered somewhat helpless and so it was very much a high rate of speed in which the collision occurred and he sustained really three injuries at the time of the accident uh, the most prominent and obvious being a concussion and we'll talk about the two other injuries that were sustained as we go throughout the episode now initially when the the organization came out the only thing that they really said was that there was a minimum of a two-week timeline for recovery or potential even for return to play. And we'll talk about some of the reasons as to why they came out and said this initially. But what I'd like to do is talk about the circumstances surrounding the injury and just even some of the things that go on pregame behind the scenes in these sporting events that led to the high-quality care the immediate response by both the therapy staff and the medical staff of both organizations that were involved, and what really goes on to managing a player um, field side. And the first is what goes on before a game. And I think this is the stuff that we don't see a lot of often if you don't work in the sporting realm, and that's the practice. And medical staffs for many teams, whether you're a single therapist or you're part of a multi-tiered a medical team within an organization where you're maybe the lead field side therapist and then you've got some sports medicine doctors and paramedics at your disposal as well. 
it can't go under notice the amount of practice that goes into drilling scenarios like this. And no matter how much you practice, it doesn't always prepare you for the real time circumstances that happen. And we'll talk about some of those that happened in this injury particularly, but it allows you to be drilled as well as you can be practice as well as you can be. So when it comes to the real thing, you and everybody involved in the preparation knows what their roles are. And this is typically called an emergency action plan. So for any therapist that's working with the team, they have an emergency action plan. The other team also has an emergency action plan. And in professional sporting organizations, these are relatively similar between both teams. And this will involve things like where does a player be taken off the field of play or be taken off of the ice? Where are the paramedics situated? How do we transport the player to the hospital if needed? How do we call on additional medical staff if needed? When do we signal the paramedics, for example? And what are the circumstances by which we have all hands on deck, which means both medical staffs from both teams are out there, the paramedics are out there. So this is something that is drilled ad nauseum between teams, within teams, often or often amongst teams as well, and is a really, really important part of fieldside medicine that can't go underrated. And again, it's not something that we obviously see on TV, but it is a really, really important part of making sure athletes stay safe. So that's what goes on pregame. Now, at the time of the injury, what had happened is the player takes a knee and the player is down on the ice and the player in this case has lost consciousness. And so whenever we know that a player has taken a knee to the head and they have lost consciousness, we know that at minimum they will have suffered a concussion. And the important thing about a concussion is you don't necessarily have to lose consciousness or even be struck in the head to sustain a concussion. But typically if you take a hit to the head and you lose consciousness, the minimum injury that you would have sustained is a concussion. So we know that at the time where he has taken a hit to the head and he's lying on the ice unconscious, that at minimum a concussion injury is involved. Now what happens in the circumstances where someone's taken a hit to the head and they haven't been rendered unconscious? Let's say they come to the bench or the field side on their own and they're saying that they have a headache, for example, but they've gotten themselves there. They've maybe taken a a hit to the head that's maybe not as significant as this one looked, then typically in most sports, the player is removed from the field of play and they are taken through what's known as a SCAT-5, which is a sport concussion assessment tool field side. And that is the most validated sport concussion tool that we have for assessing concussion. And then typically they're also taken through what's known as a VOMS exam or a vestibular oculomotor exam. And there's been actually some recent research that's come out that's looked at the addition of the VOMS exam to the administration of a SCAT-5 and increased its ability to catch concussion. So in these circumstances where you're not quite sure, a SCAT-5 and a VOMS is usually done. And in the athletic realm, and I'm not working in any professional sporting organizations at the moment, but in the athletic realm, I typically err on the side of caution and take the adage that when in doubt, sit the player out. It's very difficult, even with a SCAT-5 and a VOMS exam, to truly say whether the person has suffered a concussion, particularly 
as we know that in several cases, there is a delayed onset of, of concussion symptoms in players. So players might suffer symptom onset 36 hours, 48 hours afterwards. We also have seen this in the pediatric population, which is individuals under the age of 18. So I take quite a cautious approach field side. And if there's any question, I think that the player safety is definitely always more important than the outcome of the game and therefore they should be removed from the field of play. We definitely know that if a athlete has suffered a concussion, they are not to return to the field of play on that day for certain. And typically they're not returning with a diagnosed concussion inside of seven days based on the most validated up-to-date research in, in sport concussion and return to play. Now, what are some other things that we take into account at the time of an injury as we approach an individual that might be rendered unconscious? And with respect to brain injury, there's a scale known as the Glasgow Coma Scale. And what that scale is, is trying to predict whether someone has suffered a minor traumatic brain injury, which is a concussion, a moderate traumatic brain injury, or a severe traumatic brain injury. And this has to do with how the brain really responds to injury with respect to eye-opening, response to verbal instruction, and what the motor system is doing. So this is the three categories of the Glasgow Coma Scale, and you want your scale number to be higher. A higher scale number is better in these circumstances. And so the scale is broken down into eye-opening, verbal response, and motor response. Eye-opening is categorized from four being the best score down to one. Four means the player spontaneously opens their eyes without any instruction. It's hard to say in the circumstance of John's injury whether he spontaneously opened his eyes or he would have opened his eyes in response to sound. And often that is quite difficult to determine unless you arrive at the player, they are completely unconscious, eyes are closed, and then after some time, they respond to the sound of your voice. So spontaneous eye opening is a four, sound of voice is a three, if they don't respond to sound, but they respond to touch or pressure, it's a two. And then if they don't open their eyes at all, it's a one. Now, John would have been a four or a three. It's hard to say. Verbal response is, is the player oriented? Do they know who you are? Do they know where they are? Do they know the score of the game, the date, the time, etc.? Number four is what we often see where the player is confused. They don't necessarily know maybe what happened. They can't say the events leading up to the particular injury. They don't necessarily know the date. They might not know their name. They might get very apprehensive regarding the inability to be able to relay this information to the therapist. And we do see this quite often in the context of a concussion injury. Three is they are mumbling words, but the words don't make sense. Two is they're sort of semi-conscious and making sounds. And then one is they are nonverbal. Again, higher scores are better. In this case, John most certainly would have been a four at the immediate time of injury. He wasn't really able to orient himself, as you can see on the ice, and certainly would have been disoriented to some degree. And then the last is, how does the patient respond to motor stimulus? Are they able to obey commands? Specifically, those commands might include stay down, or roll onto your side, or hang tight. It might be something like, move your arm up and down or squeeze my fist or finger. So this is a six. A five means localizing, so they're able to follow your cues specifically and, and create local movement in, 
in the body. Four is they're able to create gross movement in uh, what's known as a flexion pattern. Three is this flexion pattern, they're able to do it, but it looks abnormal. Two are extension patterns in the body, which are a little bit more severe. And then one is the person has no motor movement. So during this, at the time of injury, again, John would have been a, f- a six or a five. Initially, he would have been a five and then would have probably soon after become a six. Now, when you look at the Glasgow Coma Scale in totality, um, minor brain injuries typically score between 13 and 15. Moderate brain injuries are 9 to 12. And again, there's some interplay there between 12 and 13. And then severe injuries at the time are 3 to 8. So John would have been somewhere between a 12 and a 13, I imagine. And we'll learn in a moment as to how that was confirmed as a minor traumatic brain injury and a concussion when he uh, arrives at the hospital. So if you look at the injury and you can Google it or YouTube it, again, based on the date and the game was against the Montreal Canadiens, what happens is player gets hit. The player is lying, uh, I believe, sort of on their left side or on, on their stomach. And the therapist is out to the player very, very quickly. And the first thing they do is they stabilize the neck because with any injury at that high rate of speed, we're also concerned with a cervical spine injury and whether that be a fracture or an injury to the spinal cord. Now, the majority of spinal cord injuries actually happen with an axial load, which means you get hit on the top of the neck with the chin sort of tucked down, or you can injure the nerve roots in the neck as they exit the spinal cord. And this is most notably injured by a kind of a lateral blow where you might get hit on the ear and your neck is moving away from your shoulder. This injury to John Tavares is very much an extension-based injury, which means he gets hit right on the forehead and the neck moves backwards. Now, despite that not being the most common mechanism for cervical injury, it doesn't mean that he wouldn't have sustained one. And so as therapists, we're always erring on the side of caution and assuming the worst to get the best outcome. So the therapist arrives very, very quickly, stabilizes the cervical spine, And then you start to see the emergency action plan take place. Now, what happens during this is John starts to come to. So he starts to regain his cognition. Now, for someone that has suffered a head injury, as they come to, they're not going to have their whereabouts about them initially. And they're going to be confused as well as they're going to be a little bit anxious because they aren't going to know exactly what happened. Chances are there will be especially as they're coming to the loss of the events leading up to what has happened. So they're going to become conscious. They're going to become confused, even if they are alert from a brain function standpoint, and they panic a little bit. And so what happens is the therapist is stabilizing John's neck, and then John comes to and John tries to get up. And I've been in these circumstances before, and it's very, very difficult because even if you're trying to tell the player to stay down or the person to stay down, even if this is not in the context of a sporting event, sometimes they're ignoring you. What happens here is the player starts to get up and you'll see the therapist immediately switch the grip on the head to mimic 
a cervical collar, which ends up being put on after the fact when the paramedics come out and you put a player on a spinal board, which was a, you know, a really great and quick thought process by the therapist. And it was probably because they had practiced this so many times. And I've heard some other people critique the therapist. I have absolutely no problem with what the medical staff did. I think that it's much easier said than done when a player starts to move, how you stabilize the player and the switching of the grip happened very, very quickly. But this also leads to part of the scariness of the injury. As John tries to get up, he starts to fall backwards. And the reason that he falls backwards is he just doesn't really have his balance or his wits quite about him. And at this point in time, the second therapist has arrived and caught him from falling back while the first therapist maintains this cervical spine stability, which is really, really great. Now, this is where John would have suffered his third injury, which is his knee injury. And this is what the Toronto Maple Leafs came out and, and commented on as well. And as the knee went backwards, he suffered a minor sprain to his MCL ligament on the inside of his knee. And that was probably because he just wasn't really weight-bearing himself. So at this point, he falls backwards. They're able to then put him on his back. At the same time, what had happened is when the therapist first went out and stabilized the cervical spine and realized John was trying to get up, he put up the fist signal, which is to call emergency medical staff onto the ice. This brings on other therapists. Usually this brings on the other team staff when they recognize the significance of the injury and allows everybody to work in conjunction with each other to get that player on the spinal board and transported to the hospital as quickly as possible. Usually these circumstances have a charge person. Usually the charge person is either the athletic therapist for the home team or the lead doctor for the home team. Uh, but most of the time it's the athletic therapist running the, the charge and everyone else is assisting and following their orders. This would include putting a cervical spine collar on, stabilizing the player to the spinal board, strapping the player in, and then getting them shipped off and transported to the hospital for further evaluation. So again, both medical staffs for both organizations did an amazing job there. I don't really understand why people are critiquing what they did. I think it was textbook as to how they were versatile with respect to how the player responded. And it's much easier said than done when you're in those circumstances on how to deal with players that have just been rendered unconscious and how they act coming to or as they regain consciousness. So great job there by both medical staffs. So the player would have then been transported to the hospital. Upon arrival, based on the mechanism of injury, a high rate of speed impact. They did both a CT scan and an MRI. The CT scan and MRI would have ruled out fracture injuries to the cervical spine, fracture injuries to the skull, and more significant injuries to the brain. This would probably include bleeding within the brain. At that point, they would have ruled out more significant injury and come to the conclusion based on Glasgow Coma Scale as well as the imaging findings that a concussion was the diagnosis. We also know that in the majority of concussion cases as well as post-concussion syndrome and persistent post-concussive symptoms, people don't have MRI findings generally and there have been a lot of really large studies done on even if there are MRI findings, the MRI findings are considered to be benign or non-related to having suffered a concussion or multiple concussions. So from there, he would have been fully evaluated by their neurosurgery team as well. 
and then closely monitored in hospital overnight and then discharged in the morning where he was closely monitored at home by the Toronto Maple Leafs medical staff, which is what they said in their interview. So the big question that I've been getting is timeline for return to play. How long would it take someone like John Tavares to return to play based on this injury? So the key thing is John Tavares actually got three injuries. He got a knee injury, he got a concussion, and then he would have got a whiplash injury as well. We know that whiplash injuries happen at substantially less force than concussion. Anywhere from two to four Gs can create a whiplash-based injury. And I would venture to guess, and I don't actually know this, but I would venture to guess that if we classify whiplash injuries from grades one through to grade four, he would have been somewhere in a grade two, which I imagine he would have been getting some neck pain with some reduction in range of motion and neck stiffness. Now, if he had his full range of motion, he would have been a wad one. Now, what's a whiplash injury? This is where the neck, again, at a high rate of speed, can injure the tissues of the neck. This can include muscular strains to a variety of muscles. Some of these muscles might include muscles like the sternocleidomastoid. There's also muscles known as longus coli and capitis that are very close to the anterior or front of the neck that can get strained. You could sprain ligaments, the most notably sprained ligament in a high rate whiplash injury is a ligament known as the anterior longitudinal ligament which is a ligament at the front of the spine and then again depending upon the presentation he might have a reduction in range of motion so he's dealing with a probably wad 2 whiplash he's dealing with a concussion he's dealing with that grade 1 mcl sprain that he suffered when falling backwards and that's really the only injury that the toronto maple leafs have commented on they said that the return to play timeline was a minimum of two weeks and that was to manage the knee injury. And that's mainly because they don't really know how he's going to respond coming out of the concussion. And concussions often look very scary because people often lose their faculties as they are being injured, and that's what led to the scariness of this injury. But the scariness at the time of injury doesn't necessarily correlate to the recovery of the athlete, which is really, really positive. So regardless of how scary it looks, if the person's being diagnosed with a concussion, they may come back relatively soon or they may be more drawn out and prolonged in the recovery. Initially with concussion research, a lot of the research used to say that 85% of concussions resolved within seven days. Then it said 85% resolved within about 30 days. And now depending upon the research that you read, it's anywhere from 25 to 40% of people still might have symptoms after 30 days. Now, a lot of this has to do with prior concussion history, health profile, access to care. We know that from a health profile standpoint, John Tavares is an elite level athlete. As far as his concussion history, I'm unaware of any previous concussions in his professional career. And then access to care. We know that being a professional athlete, he has the best access to care and his primary job is going to be returning to play. This is his full-time job. So in theory, he could return to play in two weeks. Now, this is less likely when there are three injuries that he has to manage and the management of his knee injury may also be delayed by the fact that he has a concussion. So if he didn't have a concussion, the medical staff may be able to take steps towards rehabbing the knee injury aggressively. Well, if the brain injury is preventing the knee injury from progressing, that timeline may be a little bit more drawn out. 
Now, with respect to recovery of concussion in a sporting realm, there's typically a return to play protocol for adults and children. The child's protocol is a little bit more drawn out than the adult protocol. Typically what happens is the player will rest until symptoms improve, drastically return to baseline or two days. And then after two days, they will begin light aerobic exercise. So this is just to get the heart rate up. Typically this is at less than 70% of the maximum heart rate of the athlete as well as in a professional sports setting, they will probably use something known as the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test to measure what the cardiovascular and nervous system are doing in response to elevated heart rate. So they would probably do this at the end of day two or early day three to find a baseline. Stage three is increasing the heart rate to about 80% and introducing sports-specific drills in the rehab process in a safe environment. This typically means maybe going on the ice alone and doing some passing or some light stick handling drills. Stage four is sort of non-contact practice. At this stage, you typically take the heart rate a little bit higher, 85 to 90%. You introduce more advanced sports-specific drills. They might introduce players at this time. They may not, depending upon the environment. And typically, if the player is introduced with the rest of the team, they would be wearing a non-contact jersey, which means other players would not be hitting them. And then lastly is return to full contact practice. Now, somewhere along the way, the medical physicians will clear the athlete to return. This is typically done either at stage three or stage four, depending upon whether the athlete will be rejoining players because that's usually the most concern within the team. If the athlete is just going out and doing sports-specific drills on their own time, maybe with the therapist on the ice, chances are they won't be cleared to play by the family doctor. In really high-level organizations, the doctor is following them along the way anyway. But this might be, let's say, at an amateur level or a youth level. And then in the event that they're out on their own before they'd be introduced to the rest of the team, either in a non-contact or especially prior to a contact setting, they would be cleared by a physician to ensure the athlete's safety prior to return to those environments. And then following full contact practice, they're able to return to play. So really the fastest that an athlete returns to play, an adult athlete, is seven days. So even if in this circumstance he was able to go through that whole return to play protocol and be, be returned to play at seven days, they've already kept him out two weeks with his MCL injury and haven't really commented on the fact that there's also a whiplash component there with respect to the neck. So the key thing before progression in these return to play and return to sport protocols is that you want the athlete to be 24 hours symptom free. If they start to get symptoms, they would step backwards in the process. So let's say they were doing sports specific drills, then they might step back to the light aerobic process. And a lot of the times this return to play is much more undulating than a straight line, which means sometimes the athlete has to take a step back before they can take a step forward. And this leads to a little bit of frustration sometimes on the athlete's part, but that's our role as therapists just to really coach the athlete, encourage the athlete, and allow them to control what they can control and stay on that path towards recovery. So at the end of the day, when will John Tavares return to play? 
we don't really know. Again, I don't have any concussion history. I'm not the one managing the case. The medical staff are some of the best in the world. They're going to be following him closely and returning him to play when they feel like he is safe to do so. I would guess at minimum he will be out four to six weeks. Could be a little bit shorter than this. Could be a little bit longer than this. Again, the majority of the research now suggests that anywhere from sort of 65 to 70% of people are returning to pre-injury status in about 30 days. But again, there's quite a bit going on here, especially with the knee injury and the whiplash injury. Now, if the Toronto Maple Leafs get knocked out of the playoffs, this becomes obviously less concerning for the medical staff as they would then have the entire offseason to rehab this appropriately. And they're certainly going to be taking their time to do this. Again, at the end of the day, we often forget that in professional sports, athletes are just people and their health is a priority and comes first over any winning of a championship or paycheck at the end of the day. These people are just people and, and that ultimately is the most important thing. So a little bit of a different episode this week. Again, I thought I haven't done this yet, so why not kind of walk you through a major injury that's occurred in professional sport. And if you like this format and you found it interesting and you want me to discuss other injuries that have happened to professional athletes or professional sports, feel free to leave it in the comments below. I'm always happy to do something a little bit different. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one.